Hello, welcome to the Dove and Rose podcast. This is Walter Emerson. Let's talk about where uh, Joan of Arc is right now. Joan, uh, as you know from listening to the previous podcast, Joan of Arc uh, has appeared as a phenomenon, uh, kind of out of the mist, and we find out that uh, once she gets to Chinon to see the Dauphin, who is the designated uh, person to be king of France, once she gets there, we start learning about her, and we learn that she came from uh, Captain Baudricourt's uh, court in, um, in, in Beaucouleurs. And we start piecing together some of the uh, pieces of the puzzle of Joan of Arc. And she has her conversation with King Charles. She reveals to him the answer to the secret that he held in his heart and in his prayers. He began to believe in her and sent her then to be questioned. So one of the things that uh, they did in the court and that Charles did, they were extremely uh, careful. You, you can just imagine that here comes a 17-year-old peasant girl, and she's claiming that she's going to lift the siege of Orléans and drive the English out. Uh, and this is in a sort of well into the Hundred Years' War when... Uh, the English, or I'm sorry, the French are completely demoralized at the defeats they've been taking in the hands of the English. And the English are on the verge of complete victory. They have put a siege on Orléans. That is kind of the last stopping point before they break across the Loire to take over all of France. So they're in a desperate situation, near defeat. And here comes this young peasant girl who claims that she's sent by heaven, by our Lord, to uh, bring hope to the king and, and to France. So, yes, you can imagine that there were quite a few questions that they wanted to uh, have answered. And so she was put through a number of different questions. But the, 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 the really big one that we talked about over the last couple of episodes was at Poitiers, where uh, Charles sent her to Poitiers to be questioned officially by the... Uh, the theologians uh, of the, the University of Paris that were remained loyal to Charles as opposed to those who had gone with the English and Burgundian side. And those will be the ones that prosecute her in the end. But she goes to Poitiers then, and she does well, and she impresses them, as we've uh, talked about in the last uh, episode or two. And then she, uh, coming out of that, while she's waiting to go back to Chinon, uh, in order to full, now fulfill her mission, she, um, uh, Joan, writes her letter to the English, which we talked about last time. So that's a really, really powerful and interesting uh, letter. It says a lot about Joan, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't. And so here, here we are. We're, 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 we're kind of in a segue now. Uh, getting her now situated with her uh, armor, with her army, and to start getting Joan up to Orléans where the actual action is going to take place. So we're going to move in Joan's life from... Oh, from, you know, th th thinking and concepts and projections and prophecies. And we're going to get into real action and uh, where she will be able to prove 
uh, everything that she's been saying. Now, one interesting note uh, that that uh, Regine Pernoud says in her book, Joan of Arc, her story that we're using is, uh, and this is just an interesting side note, because it may come up in our discussions later, which is while she was still in Poitiers and waiting for her um, her callback from, from Charles to go back to Shinan, uh, it, it just so happens, it appears that uh, she was uh, there uh, d- during the time when, it was the year in 1429 when Easter and the Feast of the Ascension fell on this, or I'm sorry, Good Friday and the Feast of the Ascension fell on the same day. And that happened to be a, a special occasion for pilgrimage uh, during during those times when those 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 two days came together. And so importantly, uh, Regine Pernoud says that it appears that probably a couple of the people who were with Joan when she came from Vaucouleur to Chinon probably went on that pilgrimage. She doesn't think it was necessarily Jean, uh, Jean de Metz, but she thinks that probably a couple did. And importantly, uh, people from you know all over uh, France would make this pilgrimage on this special occasion. And one of the people who made the pilgrimage uh, to uh, it was kind of you know a place distant from from Poitiers was uh, Joan of Arc's mother, uh, Isabel. And so her Joan didn't go, but her mother was there. So the group that went on this pilgrimage, and it was, uh, you know, like I say, it wasn't in the, the Poitiers area, but those who went with uh, on the pilgrimage, one of them was the friar Jean Pascarel. And Jean Pascarel would end up being Joan's confessor and spiritual spiritual advisor during her whole adventure. And the point Regine Pernoud makes is that uh, even though her mother Isabel didn't see Joan during that time, that here she is as the mother who had imparted her faith to her daughter. And she's actually the one that commended Jean Pascarel to uh, to the group to go back and take care of, of Joan. So in a sense, her mother not only imparted her faith, but her mother actually, in a certain sense, had a hand in choosing who was going to protect her spiritually on her adventure. So it's, it's kind of a beautiful story and is kind of part of our segue here. So now Joan is uh, being taken to, um, uh, to you know, Charles is fully satisfied and he's taking her to get her to be fitted with her armor and to uh, get her army. Now this all happens in Tours and this is where she gets fitted with her armor and she starts getting her household together, her military household. So this is you know, sometimes people think that Joan of Arc was just a figurehead um, that, you know, gave inspiration to the army. She was obviously taken, and, and Regine Pernoud points this out, she was obviously taken very seriously as a senior military commander. Uh, Charles gave her the assistance, the household, and everything that she needed as a commander, as the head of the French army. So she was taken 
very seriously uh, in in that position. So she's she's getting fitted for her armor. She's getting her um, army together that will be going with her to uh, on the march up the Loire to uh, Orléans to be to to begin the, the the battle to raise the siege. Now, one of the interesting things is, is and this is a, a real big story in Joan of Arc's life, is while she was being fitted with her armor, she needed a sword. Now, she already had a sword from Robert de Baudricourt when she left Vaucouleur. So de Baudricourt gave her a, a sword. And, but they, she was going to be fitted uh, with new armor and they had asked her about a sword, and she made mention to them that she wanted someone to go back to the Church of St. Catherine of Fierbois. Now, if you remember, that's where they stayed on their way from Vaucouleurs to see Charles VII, which was sometimes referred to him as King Charles, but she always referred to him as the Dauphin because he hadn't been crowned yet. Uh, you know, so she always referred to him as the Dauphin. But before, while she was on her way to see him, before this whole adventure with, you know, Charles VII took place, before she ever met him, they had stopped, if you remember, at Fierbois and at the Church of, of St. Catherine of Fierbois. And she wanted somebody to go back to that church and retrieve a sword that was buried. She wasn't sure if it was in the front of the altar or if it was in the back of the altar. Ends up it was right behind the altar and it wasn't very buried very deep. How did she know it was there? And you could think of maybe different things, but obviously she's being guided by her voices and you know divine uh, providence uh, from heaven. And, and what was this this sword? Well, the people who found it, um, you know, d dug it up, and sure enough, there was a sword behind the altar, and it was rusty, and the rust fell off easy. So there's a lot of story and legend built around her finding this sword of, of, of St. Catherine, but it's a true story. And how did she know it was there? Well, we don't, we don't know. And they retrieved it, and they, clean, they cleaned it off. Now, the, the, the story, the legend is, is that it was the sword of Charles Martel, who was the grandfather of, of uh, Charlemagne, who buried his sword there after he defeated, uh, freed France from the, um, the, the, the Muslim incursion. And so that, that, will leave to, that will leave to legend. So she received this, this very famous sword, which, which no one has really found at this point. <laughs> Um, even in modern days, nobody's found it. Um, and so she, she uh, retrieves the sword. She has, she's getting her armor, and she's getting her army together, which is a good thing. Now, what, I, what I'm really kind of moving to here as a prelude to her moving on to begin her activities, right? So everything up to now has been mystery, phenomenon, her coming out of the mist, hearing stories about her, who is she, learning about her, receiving word from Baudricourt, who had been very skeptical, that, uh, who was way up in the northeast part of, 
of the kingdom and defending Charles uh, there in the midst of uh, enemy English Burgundian territory that he had been very skeptical in the beginning, but he was eventually won over, as I discussed uh, previously. So she, she's just been this big mystery. And of course, she has to be questioned. She has to be uh, tested. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's all, and she, she tells these prophecies, here are all the things we're going to do. So it's kind of been all this, very fascinating, very interesting. But now we're getting ready to actually get to action, swords clashing, to see how these prophecies are, are fulfilled. And so we're coming up here in, in this episode is kind of the, the, the prelude to that because we've got some, some you know, interesting setup here. Now, one of the, I think, very important things that, um, you know, I'd like to bring up, because I've made a point in the previous episodes that Joan um, had a very platonic, um, you know, attitude. She had a very platonic orientation, and I, I've sort of made that, that, that discuss that, that point, and so... I want to I want to bring up uh, a quote here. Uh, as she was uh, in in tour, being fitted with her armor and everything, um, and the friar Jean Pascarel, who I mentioned earlier regarding the uh, pilgrimage, uh, he, according to Regime Pernoud, is our witness here, and. He says, when it comes to her banner, because she didn't just have armor and a sword, uh, but she also had a couple of banners made. And Jean Pascarel says that when it, regarding her, her main military banner, he says, quote, she had asked the messengers of her Lord, that is God, who appeared to her what she should do. And they had told Joan to take up the standard of her Lord, and for that reason she had made for herself a standard on which was painted the image of our Savior, sitting in judgment in the clouds of heaven, and there was also painted an angel holding in his hands a fleur-de-lis blessed by the image of the Lord. So this is, I think, again, very important where did she, what was her inspiration for the, the banner, the, the standard, I'm sorry, the standard she was going to, you know, carry with her into battle? She was very clear that this was from her voices, from heaven, that she had received the inspiration to do this. And what she put on there, of course, was uh, Jesus uh, sitting in judgment in the clouds of heaven and an angel holding a fleur-de-lis. The fleur-de-lis, of course, is a uh, you know, common representation of the French monarchy and of the French royal line. And so I think, in my mind, this very clearly shows another powerful example of her, I think, platonic orientation. I mean, the, I th we have to kind of be careful about 
you know, differentiating between, say, cultural uh, triumphalism, you know, of, you know, the, the French people versus sort of a, a truly platonic orientation or uh, impression of, of France. I mean, clearly Jones saw France as something that had um, a form. It had an essence to it that was, you know, essentially eternal. It was essentially the Lord's. The Lord, as we had said in previous episode, the Lord had already said that he was the king of France. So this is no simple temporal moment where Jesus said, look, I'll be the king of France here for a few years and, you know, we'll see how that works out. No, essentially, in a, in a very platonic um, sense, you know, Jesus had said, I am the king of, of France to, to uh, Joan, or at least the heavenly voices had told her that. And now she's painting a standard that shows an angel holding a fleur-de-lis next to Jesus uh, sitting in judgment over the, over the nations. And so uh, to me, it, it, she, she clearly has a very, um, uh, a very strong concept of there's some eternal nature to, what, to what this thing we call France. And I, and, and I want to you know, emphasize that I think is very, very different from some sort of cultural triumphalism or some sort of um, you know, state cult, uh, uh, triumphalism. I, I don't think it, it, it's not like that at all. If you remember, I said in the previous episode, it's, it, she's not pointing to the triumphalism of the French people as being better than everybody else. What she's ultimately really doing is pointing to the universal kingship of Christ that universally applies, just as the church universally applies across all nations and all cultures. Jesus is the, uh, is the king uh, over all nations, all peoples, all time. So I always say Joan doesn't point down in a triumphalism to the French people. She points, she points the French people up to look at the universal kingship of Christ. And there's, so there's something, there's something eternal you know, I like to think that she could see France, whatever that is, in essence, whatever that phenomenon is of France, as sort of a, a form that that the earthly temporal France sort of is is a type. You know, it, it is sort of a type. The archetype lives with with Jesus in, in heaven. But, there, but the France we see in the temporal world, however imperfect it is and however, um, whatever the shortcomings are, is something that uh, is a type. And so uh, I just use this again to kind of have us ponder the very platonic orientation because ultimately throughout this series, what I'm, what I'm really kind of driving at is that I really see Joan as both metaphysically as having a very platonic orientation, and clearly there's uh, uh, she's also a phenomenon, and so we have to understand her within the context of Catholic metaphysics. Uh, I say particularly Platonic metaphysics, but we also have to see her 
more broadly and, and more deeply from a phenomenological standpoint. And because that is how she appeared phenomenologically. So it's really these two things, you know, metaphysics and phenomenology and how they are separate, but how they fit together. And I think Joan is that, she is that embodiment of metaphysics, phenomenology, separate but working together. And it's very difficult to explain that in just, you know, dry philosophical terms and writing a thesis or something. But I think if you, you know, if we look and if we look at Joan, we, we see the embodiment of metaphysics and, uh, and phenomenology. And, and again, you know, I've pointed out in the previous episodes other examples, and I think that her putting together the standard is another great example. And then, um, and then I'll kind of, you know, this section as we get ready, we'll be marching pretty quick uh, to, to Orleans. But there's another, there's another piece to this that goes with that uh, blend of metaphysics and phenomenology and her deep faith. And, and that is that she took great care in the spiritual preparation of the army, as uh, Régine Pernoud says. So quoting Régine Pernoud, she says in chapter 3, she says, uh, she, Joan, exhorted her men to confess themselves. She drove away the, uh, the prostitutes. She forbade pillage, oaths, and blasphemy. And even the Duke of Alençon said she would get on to him. If he said a swear word, she would be all over him. And, and he said he got to the point where he wouldn't say swear, word, swear words around her. Uh, she knew, he knew he was going to be uh, in, in trouble. And so one of the things that she, she did was she, she brought priests with her to bless the army, to hear the confessions of the soldiers, and she exhorted them to confess and go to Mass. So it, there's clearly a very spiritual orientation, a very, there's, a, there's a sense of the divine and of the spiritual with Joan that I think all this blends in. These aren't just discrete things that, oh, she happened to, oh, just, yeah, Jesus said he was king of France, and oh, yeah, I'll make a standard, and I'm going to have the fleur-de-lis, you know, an angel holding the fleur-de-lis, and oh, I think everybody should go to Mass. These weren't just individual, discrete instances. For, for Jones, I, I believe, somewhere in her, field, in her map of meaning, somewhere in her nomadic field of meaning, uh, she sees the dots connected. So in her map of meaning, in her mind, I think there's a, there's a certain syntax, there's a certain, uh, there's, there's something, just like uh, syntax brings order to words so that we understand what's being communicated, syntax brings order to music so we can hear the beauty of the, of the music, that there's some sort of a syntax that is bringing together in Joan's map of meaning uh, in her consciousness, in her mind, in which all of this is, comes together as one story, as one event of Jesus as king of France. France is sort of a, a, 
there's something in its essence that's eternal without being triumphalist. And it's related to holiness and purity and the army, as best as she can make them, needs to reflect that holiness and purity in order to fulfill this total picture, which is built around Jesus Christ as the king and her voices from heaven and the purity. So it'd be a complete disconnect to go fight this war and have like all the rabble rousing and drunkenness and prostitutes and everything with the army. That, that, just, that just wouldn't fit. Everything had to be in order, and that included getting the army in, in, in order spiritually, which she, which she did. And so it all comes together as one sort of whole, one gestalt image for her in, 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 in doing this. And so, um, you know, that's, you know, I think that's the essential nature of, of what, what, you know, how Joan really uh, approached this. And I think it's the, it really shows the, the structure. And we get a sense for what is kind of in her mind, in her mind and heart. So what I encourage you to do is, is, is listeners is to think about Joan and everything we've been talking about from the standpoint of empathy we don't really know what was in her mind we don't know what was in her consciousness uh, we're all individual people uh, we all have our own sort of you know consciousness there's no way for us to read uh, people but the the help for me of course uh, was Edith Stein and Edith Stein's work on empathy and that got me thinking about looking empathically, looking empathetically at Joan of Arc and looking at it from her perspective because she's trying to show us what is she, she's pointing to God's perspective. So this is what the saints do for us. We look to them as examples and they point to God. And so we look to Joan and we try to understand through empathy what her map of meaning might look like. What does her field of meaning? I, I don't know what it was, neither do you, and none of us will. But we can try to take her story and, and, and empathize in a sense of looking at it through her, her perspective. What might her map of meaning look like and how might it be tied together, as I was talking about, to a syntax and to a gestalt image that has to do with, with Jesus and France and heaven and and all of that and so we can we can try to we can try to do that and i'd encourage you to spend some time kind of uh, kind of contemplating that and we might then be able to determine what her her map of meaning uh, might look like uh, and of course we're look we're looking to try to understand how what was joan's point of view joan then she's looking at what was heaven's point of view what was jesus's god's point of view so we, we look for what her point of view she'll be pointing us to what god's point of view and our holy mother and what their point of view is so that's what makes joan incredibly fascinating uh, an incredible phenomenon to to study 
So this is kind of a segue. Uh, again, we'll be moving pretty quickly from prophecy and, and all this kind of stuff. We'll be moving into action uh, pretty quickly. So I'll leave that for you to ponder, and um, we'll pick up next time. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye.